It's winter, and you can now get almost anything you need for the coldest months of the year delivered with Uber Eats. What do we mean by almost? Well, you can't get a ski slope delivered, but you can get dish soap delivered. Sunshine, that's a no. But a bottle of wine, that's a yes. A snow angel, sorry, no, but angel hair pasta. Uber Eats can definitely get you that. Get almost, almost anything delivered with Uber Eats. Order now. Alcohol and select markets. Product availability may vary by region. See app for details. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk. Douglas Maurice here with the special guest, Joshua Perry, former Ohio State linebacker, national champion, NFL draft pick, Big Ten network analyst, best dressed Buckeye I've ever covered, one of the smartest Buckeyes I've ever covered. He is joining me to talk about Urban Meyer. Talk a little bit about the state of college football right now. Update us on what he's doing, how he got into this media world. It's a great interview, man. It's it's a great interview. And I wanted to talk about Urban Meyer, but not just have me talk, but to have somebody who knows him on a different level talk about it. And Joshua is uh, played for Urban for a long time. Really smart, really honest. And I think this conversation is valuable. So let's get to it. My general thoughts on Urban Meyer, I wrote a column about it at Cleveland.com two days ago as we are recording this on Friday morning. Just that, you know, it's kind of always been the same Urban. He needed to adjust in the NFL and he didn't. We'll talk more. I still haven't done a survey with our tech subscribers about sort of what they think of it, how they think their view of Urban and his seven winning years at Ohio State. Is that affected by anything that's happened in Jacksonville? But we're just going to talk to Joshua and let him make us smarter. So let's do that. Joshua Perry, Big Ten Network Analyst, former Ohio State linebacker, coming your way on Buckeye Talk. Privileged to be joined here on Buckeye Talk by Joshua Perry, one of the finest Buckeyes I ever had the joy to cover at Ohio State, leading tackler for a national championship team, which is kind of a cool thing to hang on your your resume. And Joshua, before we get going here, um, I just want to make sure people know what you're doing. Because you're, you're lighting up the Big Ten Network, and we know that. So let's start there. How did you get to the Big Ten Network, and what do you think of it so far? Um, it was really unique. So I retired from professional football in 2018, and I had retired due to concussions from – or concerns from concussions. And it was very abrupt. It was in training camp, and it it was my own decision, but it really didn't feel like I went out on my own terms. And with that, there wasn't a a ton of lead time to plan for the next journey. And so I immediately enrolled in real estate classes. But while I was taking those classes, um, some people locally in Columbus reached out to me about some media opportunities. 
in terms of covering Ohio State on game days uh, on the radio and then covering high school football in Ohio State with Charter Spectrum. And I jumped into those opportunities and I really enjoyed it. Um, Next summer, I get a call from the Big Ten Network saying that they want to audition me. And it was really funny because I go into the audition and they're like, yeah, you know, we're not exactly sure if we're going to hire an analyst or not. We just wanted to see what you look like on set, get a little bit of a reel on you, and then we'll let you know. And I go in there, I do my audition, and then immediately I'm sitting in the office talking about travel plans for the upcoming season. They put me on um, their Friday show and then their Saturday studio coverage. Um, And so it's been really good. It's something I enjoy. I love the game of football, obviously, but I love covering football, and I love being able to talk about the game from an X's and O's standpoint. I love being able to talk about the game from a topical standpoint. And then this year, my role even evolved to be able to interview players and share some of their stories and highlight their personalities and and what the life of a big-time student athlete is really like. And I think that's cool because a lot of times it's not what you get. You get to see them on the field, but they're behind the cage and they're just a number a lot of times. And people want to peel back the onion and uh, see what these young people are like on their own time. So it's been a blessing. It's been a hell of a journey. This is an industry I want to be in for as long as anybody will have me around. Um, And I can't wait for next year to start, even though we're not even at the conclusion of this one. You know, there's another talented Ohio State linebacker a couple years older than you who had his NFL career end abruptly. And uh, it was Marcus Freeman. Yeah. And he's okay. Yeah. So, like, it's, it's one of those things. I know you guys as athletes, you're always aware of that. And we talk about this kind of thing all the time. It's like, it's going to end. Yes. Whether it's when you're 50, like you're Tom Brady, or whether it's, you know, at seventh grade basketball tryouts, like you're me, or something <laughs> in between. And so, um, and then it, it, must, it must be crazy, though, because you must have that. I know the kind of person you were at Ohio State, Joshua. You clearly were the kind of guy who knew that who had that in your head. You didn't have football blinders on, but at the same time, it must be a shock to the system when it's like one day you're an NFL player and then the next day you're not. Yeah. The hardest part is the fact that this was something I played football from the time I was in fourth grade up until I was 24 years old. So I spent in my life, I've spent more falls on a football field than I haven't up to this point. And it's such a departure and it's such a transition because it becomes a way of life and you have a certain routine and you enjoy getting up early and going to work out and going into the locker room and sitting through meetings and going out on the practice field and then meeting again and then going home and watching tape. Like it's something that you do day in and day out during the fall. And I had to find a new thing to do. And I had to uh, really redefine myself in a lot of ways. And I was never just about football, but football was a huge part of what I did. But I'm also fortunate because If you take the opportunity the right way as a collegiate football player, especially in this day and age Mm. um, at a a big time university where you have a platform, you can prepare yourself to be able to step into whatever it is. And you see guys transitioning into coaching and doing a really good job with that. You see people hopping into the media space like I'm doing right now. But there are also a lot of guys who jump into business or guys who jump into other forms of entertainment And it's because they took the time to build a craft outside of playing ball into network as well with people that can help you down the line. And so that was the big thing for me is like I I took every opportunity to network and I still do it. Like my wife says, I get on her nerves because I stop and talk to anybody who ever asked to talk to me. But I'm like, you just never know what kind of connection you're going to make with somebody. Can I ask if you don't want to answer this, don't answer this. 
you guys are putting your brains and your bodies on the line all the time when you're a football player. Um, the fact that you ended up having concussions and your career, but you did it in a way, Joshua, right? Where you got out pretty early, right? Yes. Not by your choice, but you got out early. Now that you have, I mean, you've clearly found your next career. You've clearly found your footing. Is there any relief at all in the knowledge that you're not putting your brain through that anymore? Ton of relief. Um, and and it's, a, it's a unique context for me because I was on a rookie deal and I was a core special teamer. And I was a guy who was quite frankly, a fringe roster guy. Like I was the fifth or the sixth linebacker on the roster. So I was fighting for a spot every day. And a lot of times when I was on the field, the plays that I was playing in were big collisions because you're running for 40 yards before you make contact with somebody on a special teams play sometimes. Um, and so when I stepped away, there was this thought of what am I going to do? Yeah. Right. But at the same time, it wasn't like I was departing from a $15 million contract that I wouldn't be able to see the end of. I was departing from a $600,000 salary, which is not insignificant, but I always felt like I could bet on myself and not necessarily make 600 K, but make a, a very good living. And to be completely frank, I've got some opportunities that have arisen right now to where I feel totally comfortable with what I do. And I get to sit in a climate controlled area and I get to talk and it provides me with a good living that's comfortable for myself and my wife and hopefully for a future family and without the risks that are associated with playing ball. Now, for some guys, um, they make a calculated risk that they have to maximize the time that they have to play football because it's going to be their best earning potential. And that's a really tough situation to be in. And so when I have the opportunity to counsel young athletes, collegiate athletes, I always tell them to make sure that they have versatility. And what I mean by that is they can step away from football and understand that there is another career that they can sustain themselves on. Um, but it is a relief in a lot of ways, uh, something that I dearly miss. But at the same time, like I'm fortunate as can be that I've been able to transition so successfully. Another Buckeye who's career was cut short by concussion issues in the NFL, Anthony Gonzalez. He turned out pretty good. Yeah. So like, yeah, you, guys, you guys find a way, man. You, you guys find a way. You guys find a way. Uh, I do want to, uh, before we get to our main topic here, I want to, I want to just get your thoughts on um, watching Ryan Day navigate the modern college landscape up yeah. close and personal has been interesting because, I mean, I think he's pretty honest about it when you, when you ask him about it publicly and Tim May the other yeah. day said, man, it, you know, hey, uh, you know, Ryan's kind of like a tornado out there. And, and like it is, it, like tornado is kind of the right word. And we've seen, I think, good changes for college yes. football. But the thing that I'm, I think is, is a little odd is like a lot of them aren't connected mm -hmm. yet, right? That everything the NCAA does because the NCAA is not a functioning body is, well, I'll do this. And okay, right. and then let's do this other thing. When actually it's like, if you have a comprehensive thing, you know, when you're in the NFL, you have a players union, you have the league, you bargain things, you trade things. Well, you give you this, we give you that. It doesn't feel connected yet to me, Joshua. It certainly doesn't feel finished. And the result is there's name, image, and likeness at the same time. There's transfer portal stuff at the same time that signing day is kind of early and it in some ways feels rushed. Yet on the other hand, maybe players should be able to sign right away when they commit. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know 
what the end game is, but I think it has to be more cohesive and coherent than this. What do you think of where we are right now? I'm not asking you to solve the whole issue, but do you sort of think it's a tornado and is it good or bad or just the way it is for college football right now? It is a tornado um, and it, it's, it's absolutely wild. And one of the things that um, I, I think the biggest thing is that they're not necessarily connected, but they are compounding. And when you talk to coaches and I've spoken to Ryan day about this, it, it presents a lot of unique challenges that didn't exist before. And he says that he loves the challenges and he embraces them, but it's made the job difficult in ways that did not exist. And, and when he boils it down, I think this is very wise of him. He boils it down to relationships where if the relationship is genuine and it exists the way that you believe it does, and you don't have to worry about the threat of the portal and you don't necessarily have to worry about guys who are out there chasing dollars because they understand that you'll take care of them. And the big payoff is going to be at the end of their career in college. But for me, I think, um, NIL and the transfer portal are two things right now that are very novel. And I think after five years, there will be enough cautionary tales that some of this will slow down. I think for businesses, they're going to realize that it might not be as lucrative for their bottom line to, um, you know, sign 18, 19, 20 year olds to some of these uh, endorsement deals because they're not necessarily uh, the brands that you might think they are I, I, college football fans in, in some of these big markets are extremely finicky and they turn on players and coaches very, very quickly. And um, kids are dumb. So they make mistakes. Their brains aren't fully ve- developed yet. And, and you're taking a risk on somebody whose decision-making process isn't coming from a place where they have a fully developed brain. Um, and that's a really unique thing that I think people are going to learn from. Uh, kids are also going to understand that what is being promised might not actually be what they think it is. And so a couple of kids are going to get burned. And I think it's going to be something that people will be able to learn from in five years. In the transfer portal, it's a similar thing. There are so many guys that jump in the portal for whatever reasons. And I think that players should have as much agency over their careers as possible. But you have to understand that if you're running away from something, but not to something else, you're putting yourself in a compromising position. And that's what a lot of players are doing. And the statistics are showing that there are a number of players that jump into the portal that never actually come out. And so what you lost is an opportunity to play the game that you love, an opportunity to get reps if you want to become a professional, which you need. But also some of these kids aren't going back to school. They're not going to school on scholarship once they jump in the portal because they're done and nobody signed them. And that is a huge risk to take. And so I think there are going to be enough of these stories of players who regrettably went to a certain school because they thought the NIL was going to be better than it was somewhere else. And they ended up being in a bad position, either schematically or structurally within the university coaching staff gets fired all of this because they wanted a quick payday, or there's going to be a kid that said, I don't like that. My coach is yelling at me. So I'm going to go over here where I think the grass is greener, but either over here doesn't exist or the grass isn't actually greener. Um, and it'll all start to slow down, but the novelty of it right now is making it really crazy. And then the, the early signing period thing, I'm over it. Um, and it's because of the coaching carousel. I think it has damaged the way that the hiring cycle has gone. Um, and that to me feels like a lot of coaches quitting on players, especially three and four and five year players who have been in programs. And I don't like that. I do think, I mean, there are professional sports leagues that have 
times when things are allowed to move and times when you can't, you know, the NBA, it's like, well, we have free agency. And before that it's tampering. And we, of course, know people do tamper, but if you get caught, you get punished for it and you can't change teams yet. So if the NCAA said, listen, you can't hire a coach until the full season is over. You can't officially go in the portal until the full season is over. Like all this stuff, we're going to move back signing day. I don't know how they manage the rosters when it's like you're signing a class while guys are simultaneously transferring and you don't know which NFL guys are staying or going. And there's not a lot. It's nonsense in terms of because I do think. So the one thing, Joshua, is if all this stuff makes stuff makes coaches lives harder. Well, if it makes the players lives better and the coaches lives harder, only one of those groups of people is getting millions of dollars. So if that's the cost of players having more freedom and getting some endorsement money, I get it. But I, the game, then there's like the game, the right. competitive balance of the game, the, the how you build a team, the sort of like the normal functioning of, of fans enjoying it and, and teams and teammates being able to go through things together. That's the thing that I actually, I don't think it's like threatened exactly, but it's being chipped away at a little bit. And I do think a little more structure to all these things would help the game. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. And the situation where you do see players getting hurt is when Brian Kelly leaves an 11 win team to go take another opportunity. And I understand why he took that opportunity and uh, it's really hard to turn that down, but the timing of it really stinks. And I think it galvanized the team, but at the same time, like there was, they, I mean, they weren't totally out of it when BK decided he wanted to jump. And I I think that type of stuff can definitely be harmful. Um, You brought up, uh, this roster management idea of you're trying to sign classes while players are exiting and you're trying to go to the portal to maybe fill out the rest of your class. And the one thing that you see with some universities is, um, you know, they have these, these limits on signing classes and 30, 40 players will be exiting a program because of seniors, but also because of transfers and they can only bring in so many. Um, and that needs to be addressed as well. There needs to be a mechanism where scholarship for scholarship, these programs can replace players because that becomes a health and safety issue in terms of depth. No, I I agree. And then that's when you, and then you end up grabbing guys without cohesion that you end up, uh, we grab guys in the portal just to get bodies and it wasn't best for them. It wasn't best for us, which only leads to more portal stuff. If only there was a commissioner. If only there was actually somebody in charge. I'll do it. College football. Don't don't raise your hand. We will start. A, we will start a campaign tomorrow for Joshua Perry, commissioner. I will be of the commissioner. Football. There we go. God, somebody who understands it and has played it and knows what's up. All right, let's talk about Urban Meyer. Yes. And I I, I want to start this by talking about the difference between what a player wants and expects from a college football coach and what he wants and expects from an NFL coach. What are the differences in how players are treated in the relationships with the head coach? Is it vastly different when it's teenagers versus grown men? Or Joshua, in your opinion, as someone who has done both, is it not that different? Traditionally, it has been different. And for a number of reasons is I think there's this old school paradigm of uh, the way that you can talk to young people versus the way that you can talk to adults Um, and uh, uh, a shift in, I guess, the power dynamic 
of somebody in their youth having to respect their elders and their elders not necessarily having to give them the same level of respect back versus peer to peer, you're supposed to be on a similar plane in terms of how you treat one another. Um, The other thing that happens too is for college athletes, they are looking for their breakthrough. They're looking to be developed. They're looking to be put on the platform to where they can succeed best. Whereas when you step into the NFL, these guys are all the best of the best. And they just want to be put in the best position on the field, but they don't need somebody to necessarily develop them. Not all of them do. And they don't need somebody to necessarily champion them. They just need to get their reps because if they can put good reps on tape, whether they're employed with the current team they're with, they'll be employed somewhere else. But that's basically it is can my coach put me in the best position possible? Now, I think that this dynamic is definitely changing because of NIL and because specifically of the transfer portal where a player can say, um, you know, coach, I'm not going to be talked to like this because I can go with X, Y, and Z coach who doesn't coach this way. And I feel like it might be a better fit. And so in certain ways, you feel like college coaches have had to adapt to this new age of kid. And it was the other thing too, it's, it's interesting when talking about this new age of kid, Shannon Sharp was uh, on his show, uh, Undisputed. And he was talking about Urban Meyer talking to grown men. He can't talk to the same way he talked to a teenager. And that is an old school mentality because a lot of young people now are coming from an upbringing where they're being encouraged to challenge adults when they feel like the adults are not being fair. And they've been challenged to, uh, they've been trained to, command respect regardless of their age and um, that you don't have to discipline your kids by spanking them anymore. You can discipline them by just talking to them. And so I think that's a part of it too, is my upbringing was, you know, my parents were the, they were the authority and we had to fall in line as children. But now a lot of people, and even I'm still, I'm 27, but people who are 17 now, their parents didn't necessarily raise them like that. It was more of a, uh, there was more of an open line of communication where my, my mom would have said, you know, don't talk back to me. A lot of times parents right now are encouraging that conversation, right? And so the athlete is totally different as well. And so this idea that you can talk to a grown man one way and you can't talk to a teenager uh, uh, the same way or vice versa throw that out the window. I think that teenagers a lot of times want to be talked to and respected the same way you would talk to another adult. No, I think that's a good point. I mean, we see that generational change in a lot of things, but I think a position like coaching is where it shows up a lot, where you have, you are in charge of a large group of people that there's kind of a big age difference, at least some of the time between the person in charge and the people that are underneath that person. Yep. And it's especially true in college, but a lot of the times it's still true in the NFL. Like with Sean McVay, it's not true in the NFL. Right. But I do think when you have generational change, these are almost like the front lines of where it shows up. And as we talked about, like, hey, you know, Ryan Day is saying, like, I'm in the midst of a tornado. I actually have thought, I'm not exactly sure what Urban would be like in the midst of this current tornado with yeah. – he, I mean, you cannot dispute the success on the field of what he did in college football for 17 years. He has a third best winning percentage of any major college coach who coached for at least 10 years. Newt Rockney's number one, Urban Meyer's number three. He flipped it immediately at all four of his stops. You can't right. dispute the winning. You can't do it. But I do think a lot of it was this is how Urban does it. 
Yeah. And I like he would not argue that. Yeah. He, he would not argue. And so in a world where, well, hey, this player's going to do his endorsement thing today and getting a lot of money. And this player, like you said, you yelled at me, I might transfer and I have the ability to do so without sitting out. I'm not saying he couldn't do it, but there the as we see players get more and more power at every level, and it already happened in the NBA a coach who came up in a different era and especially was successful at a different era. Cause sometimes Joshua, when you're not successful, you're forced to change. Yes. But when you are successful, it's like, well, why would I change? This works. But when the world changes around you, you know, I think whatever happened, the things that happened with urban in the NFL, I think there are a variety of reasons they happen, but I also think some of it is the context of the world that it's not only the level. It's that the world has changed in the last five years and the way athletes relate to their, their coaches. It's interesting too. like in, in college, you're, you're, you know, it's like, it's coach fickle, it's coach Meyer, it's coach Herman, you know, coach Johnson, and you go to the NFL and it's Luke and it's urban and it's Tom and it's Larry. And so even that was probably a shift for urban where he's used to being called coach Meyer and dudes up there ain't going to do that. It's They're calling them urban because they see themselves on the same plane. I'm grown. You're grown. So I call grown people by their first name. When I was a kid, I used to call my elders Mr. and Mrs. Now that I'm grown, we just call each other by our names. And we, we conduct ourselves like adults. That had to be a huge change for him. And you mentioned what Urban did as a college coach is being successful. And that is 100% true. The reason why it was successful is because Urban is a systems guy. He is extremely organized. He is a guy that likes to implement systems, to streamline whatever the coaching transition is, to implement his culture, his system, and the way he wants to operate. And I think as it's like a a computer, as the technology upgrades, then you need to upgrade the software. Like you can't be running Windows 95 on your current computer. That's that's a, a poor way of handling the situation that you have. And I think that for Urban, it was really hard for him to upgrade the software, if that makes sense, because the, the 20-year-old version that he was running worked up until 2018 when he was done at Ohio State. Now you step into a little bit of a new realm and you got to tweak and you got to adjust. And for him, that was difficult. And then it became compounded when in the preseason, you know, it's like it's supposed to be exhibition and you're supposed to get better. And he's taking those losses seriously. And then you start off the year and it's not good. And, uh, you know, it's just all these things that he was not used to that were happening to him. And I think it challenged some of his systems, but it also made him really hunker down and say that they work instead of maybe exploring what the other options might have looked like. That's really true. When stuff's when you've done things one way and been successful the whole time, when you're doing the same thing and it's not working, you can do two things. You can double down on your your way or you can adjust. I I did I really did think that when he got hired in, in the NFL, I'm not going to like say, "Oh, I I knew this wouldn't work whatever." Like I thought, listen, as you said, the guy is like a systems and structures guy. Yeah, he 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 has a plan of how an organization should work. Yep. He hires people to do their jobs yep. and then he oversees things and then he pushes mm-hmm. everybody in those systems and structures to the max. 
He drives them hard. But when you have a good system and structure set up, that worked. And part of what Ryan Day inherited was an Urban Meyer built system and structure that yeah. Ryan Day is now driving that ship in a in a, a lot of ways, a different way. He's mm-hmm. that next generation. He is the upgrade. Man, this computer analogy of yours is like right on with the software yeah. upgrade. Oh, yeah. Ryan Day is that. He's the new software. He's a generation younger than Urban. But he, you put him in the same computer and Urban was like, man, I set this computer up. It's pretty good. But I did wonder, you know, Mick didn't go. Pantone didn't go. Um, Brian Voltolini didn't go. We know, we know Ryan Stamper went. We know yep. Fernando Lovo was there with him for a while. Yep. I know there was this, you know, when Urban, when he was here, there was a lot of talk about his first staff at Florida. That were, mm-hmm. Those were all his guys, right? Mm-hmm. Led by Dan Mullen, but a bunch of other guys. Those were the guys that had come up with him. Sure. And he, he won with those guys at the highest level. And then those guys had opportunities and went up and left. And when he hired like his next group of guys, we didn't know as well. He wasn't as good. Yeah. And that's when he started to, to have trouble at Florida. And so I think when you are a systems and structures guy, the people around you really, really, really matter. And yeah. I don't know in the end if, I mean, I, I clearly think he didn't know a lot of the people around him the way he knew Mickey Marotti. Yeah. And then when it went a little sideways, he didn't have the people there to lean on. And here we are. Yeah, so I think hiring was one of the things that was pinpointed as uh, paramount for Urban to have success uh, for all of the reasons that you stated. And for him, the, the thing that happens is he's a full alignment guy. So the reason why Mickey and Volt and Pantone were really, really good is because they were always aligned with Urban. They had been there from the start. They understood the way that he wanted to run things. They were basically an echo of his voice when he wasn't around, whether it was in operations and how uh, he wanted Volt to handle that side of it, whether it was strength and conditioning, Mickey and, and Urban were fully aligned and Pantone on the recruiting trail. It was really, really good. Coming into the NFL, he had to try to build that alignment. And I'm not exactly sure that you can do that um, as well as he was able to do it in college. I feel like one of the only guys who's truly been able to build alignment like that is Bill Belichick and what he's done in New England. He's a guy who almost only hires from within. Um, He's had his offensive coordinator around for a long time. He had Matt Patricia there for a a ton of time. All of their scouts and and everybody who rises up through the front office side rises from within. And it worked really well for him because he was able to kind of be not what, not the, the hard driver that urban always is. I think Bill understands professionals, but he was as critical of Tom as he was the guy who was an undrafted free agent. He was able to do that because of what he built there. And I think Urban wanted to build that, but he had some guys who I'm not exactly sure were fully bought into that idea. And so that definitely hurts you is uh, when you're, when your staff isn't necessarily on the same page and then things start going haywire, um, it becomes a real challenge in terms of making sure that morale is together And from people who I've spoken to about the situation down there, I think a lot of it had to do with uh, some disgruntled staff. And you can talk to uh, coaches who are at Ohio State, and they'll probably tell you that every conversation with Urban is not necessarily pleasant, um, but Urban is demanding, and he wants his coaches to bring the best out of players. And as a player, I can tell you every conversation I had with him wasn't pleasant, but I knew that he wanted to bring the best out of me. In the NFL, it's it's a little bit of a uh, a different type of environment because of where people have come from in their past. A lot of people don't do it the way that Urban does it. Now, it's interesting, you know, for, for Mick, 
like he's not leaving Ohio State. He's got a great job there. He's got an AD title and the strength and conditioning in the NFL is totally different. Like guys are, you know, Tom Brady was bringing his own trainer around to the Patriots facility. Like that's what guys do. You know, it's not, it's not Mickey's program. It's the player's program. And Mick has to work his way around it to make sure guys aren't getting injured. Uh, when you're Volt, you know, his, the, his operation is different than what an NFL operation would be. So a lot of those guys felt like they were best in their college roles um, and so for Urban, he had to try to find those exact guys. He got a Schlegel, who I think was great. Um, he had stamp working on some things down there uh, with both front office and, and, you know, player development, but also a little bit of operations. And I think he was really good. But when you look at the, the coaching staff side of it, I think that's where a little bit of the splintering came from. He is terrible at losing. And again, he <laughs> says this. He says it. He knows it. He knows it, which is. That was the one thing of like, all right, well, I mean, nobody likes to lose. Everybody's terrible at losing, but he has lost so little. He's never had a losing record. And then you look at it. I mean, we all know it, right? Big 10 championship game, 2013. Everybody thinks you guys are going to win. Michigan State gets you and he's, his eyes are hollow after the game, right? He looks like he's in shock. You know, the loss um, at Iowa. In, in 2017, he, he looks like he's in shock almost. And so, I mean, but the thing at Ohio State is you, you guys don't lose, man. You guys, right. so it's a shock to the system. I thought, okay, he expressed it. I'm terrible at losing. I know it. But I thought, well, you're going to lose because it's the NFL. You're built to lose in the NFL. 10 and 7 is a good record in the NFL. 11 right. and 6 is a good record. But yes. it felt like he didn't really adjust to like, hey, not every loss is life or death. You can lose and still have a good season. As you said, it, from all reports, he was taking preseason losses hard. And that's one of the things that I don't, I'm surprised that maybe he couldn't have that talk with himself to be like, man, this is how you are. It's part of what makes you great that you don't tolerate any loss. But because Josh, Joshua, there has to be a butt in there at the NFL, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's interesting because I think on the outside looking in, we could say even as great of a coach as we think Urban is, that Jacksonville situation was going to be tough. You had the first round or you had the number one overall pick, which is great. And you got a generational quarterback, which is awesome, but he's a rookie still. And, and rookies are just not there yet. And you look at the rest of their roster. It wasn't very good. Like they didn't have a lot to work with. And so we could see that and say, okay, like if they end up winning two or three or four games, like that's a good start. And they can continue to build off of that into next year. I think for Urban telling him that you're going to lose 13 games, like he cannot conceptualize that. Yeah, he, he didn't lose 13 games in his tenure at Ohio State. That is something that's really hard for a guy like him to deal with. And then I think the other thing, too, is the way that they lost some of the games probably bothered him because their offense – was in their last seven games, they, they're scoring nine points a game. Their defense was not very good. That last game that he coached in was a shutout. Like, those are things that he struggles with, and especially if he feels like he's not getting um, – the, the roster is not being maximized. Those are the things that make him stay up at night. It was really unique because he used to always say to us that uh, if, if we go out and we play a game and we're nine units strong and the team just has a, a better coaching staff – and better players than us, then we can sleep at night. And the caveat to that would be we got to go find better coaches and better players. But I can sleep at night if I know that the team that we lined up against was just better. 
But if we are not maximized and we're not fully ready to play and we lose a game, that was the scenario where he couldn't sleep at night. And so maybe I'm looking at this is he thought that they were not at maximum capacity in terms of what they can do. And that's what really irked him. And he's not a schemer anymore, right? No. When, Chip, when Chip Kelly went to the NFL, Chip Kelly's bringing his playbook, man, yeah. let's go. Urban, again, Urban admits that. Yes. This is a guy who helped bring in the spread offense in college football. Urban Meyer right. was a schemer. He was. Right. He, he had offensive ingenuity. But over time, he developed into a culture CEO coach who yeah. went out and hired Tom Herman and yes. Ryan Day and guys yes. like that to maximize his offense. So I know there have been some NFL writers who have said like, oh, well, you know, like the schematic stuff is like that was never going to be it. And if he yeah. didn't nail the offensive coordinator hire or the defensive coordinator hire, that was always going to be a problem because that's not what he was going to do. Yeah. And, and this is like, you know, I'm, I'm not I guess we're not trying to turn this necessarily into a defend urban podcast because there were a ton of mistakes that he made. But if you're looking at this from a sober standpoint, Bevel it, like he did a very poor job. Like this was not Urban's play calling and Urban's bad offense or whatever the case was. Like he hired that coordinator. So that's part of his responsibility. That dude ain't a good coordinator. Like he is not good at his job. And that's part of what went into this. Like the dude could not call. And he's going to be the one calling plays in the upcoming game. I'd be very curious to see what Jacksonville looks like against the Texans, because that's another bad team. And like, he's still calling plays. I want to know what they look like, but that's, that is a part of it is urban for a long time was not the scheme guy. Tom Herman did a great job. And then we saw when it was Ed Warner and Tim Beck, that the offense kind of took a step back and then Ryan day comes in and it's phenomenal. And urban just found the guys who could run the type of offense that he wanted and he could step in absolutely could coach it. And he could coach fundamentals with the best of them, but his deal wasn't sitting up there on the board and, and doing the in-depth game planning all day long. It was trusting the guys that he hired that they would be able to do their job really well. So I, I also think, and again, this is why you're here, Joshua, because I just think random stuff. You live it. <laughs> what, sometimes you can sort of convey the same message or very similar message. And if the context changes, the message is received in a very different way. Mm-hmm. So some of the stuff like, you know, the report of Urban Meyer bringing his assistants in and going around the room and saying, like, defend your resume. I'm a winner. You guys are a bunch of losers. If they were eight and three, that might just be motivation. Right. right. That's Urban Meyer pushing his guys. I would imagine there were similar conversations with his assistants at Ohio State. I'm 100 percent sure there were. So it's the context of, hey, it, we're losing. So now the stuff, I just think a lot of the stuff, when Urban said it in a world where the team was winning, it's motivation. When you say it in a world where the team is losing, now you're belittling people. Now you're yes. being mean. And so I know someone on Twitter, when I wrote the column that I did, and then they said, hey, Joshua Perry was saying this stuff on the radio. Urban's kind of always been like this. Like, and they said, why didn't you guys write about this then? And I said, well, what would the story have been if we ever knew that there was any physical things, you know, right. He kicked the kicker. That's Which he never did at Ohio State. But what would the story be of like successful coach hurts players' feelings on way yeah. to championship? Like yeah, Nick Saban is as critical as ever, right? Like yeah. in, in, in Urban was the thing that I always felt about him was he was critical. He was militant. It was a tough program. And he was like that with players where he would call people out in the team meeting and it was not pleasant. 
and it was not pretty and you did not feel good about it. And he would do the same thing with coaches. But I promise you, he delivered the exact opposite of that when the time came. The amount of times he would display like like just a, a, a walk on guy who had extreme effort on a play in practice or uh, if there was a technique that just a player couldn't break through on, he finally broke through and had like two or three good reps in a row. He put that on display. When a coach called, when one of the coordinators called a, a great game, he would tell us your coordinator put you in a great position. Right. And so like, what's the story there? Urban is, is he's critical and he's, he's being hard on people. Yes. And it's great when you win. Right. But at the same time, like he's patting dudes on the back. Like, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a unique dichotomy. And I think part of it really comes down to people's individual experiences with him. And I had both sides of that dichotomy. My first conversation with Urban Meyer, he told me I was not good enough to play at Ohio State and that if he was the coach when I was being recruited, he would not have recruited me. And that was my life with Urban for a year and a half. That was the treatment I received from him. He told me that, you know, I should I should think about transferring. I was I was soft. I was not tough enough. All these different things. And again, it's very unpleasant. I did not enjoy those moments. I also did not shy away from it because there's some truth in that conversation. He's brutally honest, heavy on the brutality and heavy on the honesty. On the flip side, I started to turn the corner about halfway through my sophomore season. And it was praise and it was encouragement when he really saw it click for me. So his motivation tactic was to challenge me down to my core to see if I really wanted to be the type of player he thought I could be, if I really wanted to be a great Buckeye. And then when he saw it click, he pulled off of that and he switched the mechanism to now let's encourage that and let's bring the rest of that out. And that's, it's one of the most difficult things. And again, like this is not to, to downplay the missteps that he had down in Jacksonville, because there are a lot of them and there has to be extreme ownership from him. Like he expected out of us when I was a player at Ohio state, but it's also to say that when things aren't going well, or when you're a disgruntled player, or when you're a disgruntled coach, like you're going to harp on all the negatives. If to your point, this is a team that has, even six or seven wins, let alone eight or nine wins. I'm not exactly sure that the story's the same. It's not received the same way. So, and, and that's the thing. Listen, he sh- the idea that he hired the Iowa strength coach off the start there was crazy. It was Absolutely. crazy. He, he, and the idea that there wasn't anybody around him who said, Urban, you yeah. cannot do this, yeah. blows my mind. Yep. The thing in the bar in Ohio, I wrote a column. I was very critical of him in the moment. That's embarrassing to him. That's it embarrassing is. to his team, Absolutely. his franchise, his family. Yep. He's a grown man. He needs to hold himself to a higher standard. That was awful. He blew Absolutely. a hole in the aura of Urban Meyer and in some of his legacy by behaving that way in public while his team was back getting back to work. That was yep. awful. You can't kick the kicker. You can't kick people. No, right? not at all. Like in that's way. egregious. And, and that's what ended his tenure down there, if yes. being completely honest. Like I'm, I'm a firm believer that he would have at bare minimum made it to the end of the season. There would have been some really tough discussions with ownership and front office and everything about the direction of the Jaguars. But I think that Shad Khan was in it for the long run, at least with urban, he really wanted him to be there. And I think he was going to give him chances that right there. That's a nail in the coffin. 
you literally cannot do that. And, and that is a career ender, which is what's happened to Urban. And he's going to have to try to find ways to recover from that. Um, and, and I'm not trying to kick him while he's down. It's just being honest about the situation. Um, but when you look at it from a football standpoint, I'm not exactly sure that they were ready to move off of him. They were probably yeah. going to have to maybe look at some some new coaches and a new coordinator, a new wide receiver coach, and some guys on defense that they were going to have to shuffle around. But, like, it was it was – it was the fact that at times he could not stay out of his own damn way that really did admit. So all those things, it's like, okay, well, there's the Zach, the Zach Smith situation at Ohio State, which was we have all know what happened there, and that was not good, and he did not handle that properly at all. He made yep. multiple mistakes there in how he addressed that, and he there were consequences for that action. But we never, you know, there were no reports of, of anybody that I ever heard of that he, that he kicked somebody, right? No, I mean, he the, didn't. <laughs> the public display, you know, he was not at a bar behaving that way to no. our knowledge while he was at Ohio State. So then this stuff. So that's not to excuse any of that stuff. But, Joshua, before we let you go, I want to make sure we sort of talk about how this affects his Ohio State legacy, because yeah. I know some people, again, it's just stuff on Twitter, but it's, it, it reflects some way of thinking that some people have said, like, well, maybe he was fooling people all along. And it's like, well. He won at the highest level as a football right. coach. So there's no fool in that. Your record is your record. Your wins are your wins. So the main problem, frankly, the, the main problem is he didn't win anymore. That's right. why all this other stuff is, is at the forefront. But it's the way winning solves everything. Yes. So for 17 years, he won. That's not fake. You can't fake that. He won. Yes. And then we know what happened at Florida, but I thought the, the types of players he brought in at Ohio State, I thought he put a lot of that Florida stuff Yes. If they were behind him. Yes. Because I that was not what happened at all at Ohio State. That was no. not what the program was like. This was not a rogue program. This was not guys out doing things all the time. So that when that now that gets dredged back up in this conversation, and that's part of his legacy, and he has to deal sure. with that. Sure. But at Ohio State, for those seven years, he won at the highest level and he sort of set the program on a path with the way he organized things. Was he everybody's best friend and Mr. Nice guy all the time? It's like, well, no. Right. I mean, but did anyone think, did we all really think that while it was happening? My sister used to work in politics, Joshua. And it was like, she'd be in campaigns and be like, man, some of these politicians, man, like they're, they're a little, and it's like, but it's a, it's almost a function of how it works. Like if you don't have an ego, if you aren't a little bit nuts, how can you possibly run for high office with the way right. politics works in this world? Right. How can you be? It's really hard, I think, to be a super successful football coach and be a completely normal dude. Yeah. Right. No, I mean, everybody's got their thing yeah. as a coach and like, so, oh, go ahead. No, it's just like, so what are we, what are we to make of then people listening to this podcast, Joshua, who live and die with Ohio State football, who love the program, no matter who's in charge, but certainly love the success of the Urban Meyer era, how are they to sort of take what has happened in Jacksonville and apply that to what happened for seven years at Ohio State? Yeah, it's interesting because for anybody to think that they were fooled by Urban, I think that you would, I would probably say that you had blinders on because there were a number of times where you you could tell like Urban is not Mr. Nice Guy. And right. I, I don't think that there are a lot of coaches who could be successful being nice all the time. Um, 
you you probably remember this, but when he first came into Ohio State, he publicly called the wide receiver room a clown show. And people, frankly, the fans in the media liked it. Yes. It was like, hey, man, this guy's being honest. But so like, I'm sure the receivers didn't like it, though. No. And, but like, so if if he went in, in the meeting room, he was calling his wide receivers who were running into each other in Jacksonville a clown show. How is that different? Right. And again, this isn't to defend. It's just to explain the situation of Urban as a coach. He called our wide receivers a clown show at Ohio State. He was not wrong. That room became really good under him and into Ryan Day. It's been really, really good wide receiver play. And it was because of the approach he took with that room and the pressure that he applied on. And that was kind of his deal. And we mentioned it earlier. The difference is that at Ohio State, it worked. And so you're not going to have coaches leaking what went on in the team meeting room because they're disgruntled or because they're angry about the coach being a jerk. And also they're miserable because they're losing. Right. And you're not going to have players coming out and talking about every single conversation that happened in a private team meeting or behind closed doors where urban was very direct. And he might've said some things that don't come across as very nice to a lot of people, because these players are feeling like they're being maximized. How many guys that Urban put in the NFL? Like, I know a lot of guys who aren't particularly satisfied with some of the interactions they had with their coach, but they're very appreciative of the players that they became under his direction, right? And so it's it's really unique. And then uh, Bo Bishop on uh, 97.1 The Fan in Columbus brought this analogy up. But he said when he was a kid, nationally, all he really knew about Woody Hayes was the punch in the Clemson game that ended his career. And he said it wasn't really until he started doing media here in Columbus that he realized what type of legend that Woody Hayes was. And this is not to make a comparison between Urban Meyer and Woody Hayes, but it's to say that uh, a lot of the national media is up in arms and they're very uh, critical. And I think they have a right to be because of some of the actions that occurred there at the end. I also think some of it is disingenuous because not all of them have been inside the program and they don't know urban person to person. Right. But if you go based off of what a lot of the national media is saying, you would think that his reputation is fully tarnished. If you would go based off of uh, some of the great moments that he had based here in Columbus, I think it would be a totally different reputation. And what's hard for a guy like me is like um, you you have experiences with a person and uh, you know that those experiences can be very different than what experience somebody else has with that same person. And so for me, it's hard to um, not revere Urban in a lot of regards because of what he had meant to me in, in my development as an athlete and uh, in, to my future because he has given me advice and he has guided me in a lot of ways. Um, but I can also sit back and say, boy, I don't like what you did right there. And I'm going to hold you accountable to that. Um, and, and, you know, you need to find ways to do better. And I, I talked to coach on the phone yesterday and I I told him like, I'm thinking about you, um, you know, just make sure you stay on the path, right. You need to get back to what you have been before. Um, and so that's it for me is like, I think for a lot of people here in Columbus, you can appreciate what's gone on here. You can also, uh, hope for accountability in terms of what coach did down in Jacksonville, which he's going to receive in this environment. There are very few people that are uh, not held accountable anymore. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a difficult situation. I know it's, it's, it's going to be hard for him and, and he's going to have to live with the decisions that he made, the consequences that have come. 
but that doesn't tarnish what I, what I have experienced with him personally. It's hard. You know, everybody talked to him. I sat in his office with him in 2019 in September and talked about his future. And he was just like, I, I kind of, I don't know if I want to coach again, but I'm not sure I can stop myself from coaching again. And I said, like, I almost wish we could just go back and say like, urban, this is what's going to happen. Like, don't do it. Yeah. You were really good on TV. Yeah. Like you kind of had your office at Ohio state, be a grandpa, go do your thing. Like, but when you got don't the itch, do it, man, man, when you got the itch and that's like, it's sometimes your, your uh, biggest strength is also your biggest weakness. Absolutely. Because, you know, for a guy like him, you don't know when to call it quits. But if, like, but if he had more perspective, if he had a greater overall view of how football fit into his life, he might not have won 187 games in 17 years because he was deal. maniacally dedicated to winning a football game every week. That's what drove him. And it worked. And that you can't splice people up, Joshua. Yeah. You can't say, I like this 80% of a person, but I wish I could take away this 20% because we're a whole person, yep. good and bad. And they're often, the they're, they're directly connected. They're not coincidental. Oh, isn't it weird? This guy is good at this and bad at this. It's like, no, that's why yes. he's good at this because he's bad at this. He's yeah. bad at this because he's good at this. For all so, the times I got dog cuss, like, you know, it was not a pleasant thing that happened, but for every time I got dog cussed, I feel like I went out there and made a tackle during the national championship season. Like that's how you become, uh, you know, a guy who uh, gets to sit back and do what I do now. It's how you become a notable player at Ohio state is you, you, you know, it, you understand that when that type of thing is working, it's, it, it's what makes you what you become. And I, and I will say, it doesn't mean everybody coaches that way. It doesn't mean no, that the Meyer know, way is the only way it's his it, way though. As a matter of fact, like, I don't, I'm not exactly sure that players are going to tolerate that in, in the college ranks anymore. Like, I, I don't think right. Urban could be effective. I, we were built differently than the kids that are playing right now. And I, like I said earlier, it wasn't that long ago that I was at Ohio State. And it's not a bad thing that we're different than the kids that are there now. It's probably a better thing because those kids might have better outcomes when they're done playing ball. Like, you see, some of the old dudes with the, the old school mentality, like some of them just aren't, they're just not right. Um, and, and these kids are, they're a little bit more aware of the bigger picture and that it doesn't necessarily have to be done like that. It was just for where we were as a program and, and what players we had in the locker room and, and the players that decided they wanted to play for Urban Meyer, that was what worked for them. And I do think you watch Ryan Day, Ryan Day doesn't do it the same way as Urban Meyer. Right? No, and, he's that he had, next generation he recruits his profile of player too. Yes, yes. You know, and that's a big part of it. There, there are a bunch of really good players out there that are very, very different. And so the type of player that fits urban's coaching style might not be the same one that fits Ryan's and vice versa, but they could still both be really good players and you can still get the job done doing it either way. It's just, you have the people have to be the, the whole equation has to work out is basically what it comes down to. So in the end, again, there's not really much to, to defend from Urban Meyer's tenure in Jacksonville because he did a lot of things wrong and it was incredibly unsuccessful and it didn't even last a year. So what we're looking for here is, is context, is the context yeah. of Urban Meyer. And as people now go backward, um, you just have to have an understanding of, of how a person like that goes about his job. And, and it's one of those things. It's, and again, it's not to defend any behavior at the cost of winning, but right. like, you know, who I think is might be like a super nice guy. I'm not exactly sure. Like Brady Hoke. 
Sure. So, but but also on the other hand, you know who I, who I do think, and you heard it while Urban was here. I have, would have people mention it. I do think Jim Trestle went about his business in a different way than Urban Meyer. And he that, did. And and that I don't my coverage of Jim Trestle wasn't my belief that he was dog cussing people on a regular basis. Doesn't mean no. he never did it, but it's it's a style of management. And but we knew the difference between Trestle and Urban while it was happening. Right. But it, I mean, the funny part about that equation, though, is Jim Trestle wasn't dog cussing people. But you talk to Bobby Carpenter and James Laurinaitis like Luke Fickle was a lot more fiery when he was coaching under Trestle than when he was coaching under Urban. You know, and, and Luke was basically the foil in both of those situations. If the head coach is not going to be the guy who's, you know, in your face all the time, then I have to be that guy. And then when Urban comes around, Luke said, well, I can't be that guy all the time. Like, my guys need somebody who's going to talk to him now instead of yelling at him on the football field. And so I think that's kind of where it plays off, too, is, is when you have um, – when you again, that full equation, when you have that complementary staff that can play off of what you do, that's where it becomes successful. And, and again, like this is not to say that um, Luke was a maniac or anything, but he was definitely more fiery when he was with a head coach that was a little bit more reserved than he was with the fiery head coach. Right. I mean, I could podcast with you for six hours, Joshua, but I, my understanding is you have a very busy life to lead. So uh, I'm taking a nap. Actually, (laughs) (laughs) that was, that was by far one of the best interviews we've had on Buckeye talk before we go. I want you to talk about, I do think it's a great time when not that it's a, you know, disappointing. What does a disappointing Ohio state season mean? Yeah, I mean, it means right. national championship and you lost to Michigan. Ten, ten wins, disappointing. Ten wins, right. Yeah. But this is a great time to relive some of the great days of the past. You did this podcast with Evan Spencer, Glory Days, Dreams, and Nightmares, where uh, it's been out for a couple months. You guys, all through this fall, sort of relived that 2014 season. Again, for people listening to this, you can find this podcast basically anywhere. Glory Days, Dreams, and Nightmares, how did you and Evan come up with this idea that you wanted to do that podcast? And what was that experience like of doing a narrative podcast where you're leading your listeners through an entire season that you guys lived? Yeah, it was totally different than uh, any other form of media I'd done. This was long form storytelling. This was from the first person perspective. This was our story. And that meant that we had control over the way that we could tell it. That meant that we could tell it from our point of view, our truth and what we had experienced. And uh, we, a guy named Chris Caldwell, who's based out of New York, he used to work for uh, Gatorade and Fox Sports, um, reached out to us. He's an Ohio State alum and said, we want to, I want to do a storytelling podcast about the 2014 season. And so we got together and it was countless hours of research and countless hours of planning. And uh, quite frankly, for every hour long episode we dropped, we probably had three hours worth of content we take for that episode. So it was just a lot, um, a ton of memories, but we wanted to share that specific story because it is, I think, better than anything Hollywood could make. We called it Dreams and Nightmares because there was a Meek Mill song that we used to listen to before we went out on the football field called Dreams and Nightmares. I also think that perfectly encapsulates the tenor of the season where the dream of winning a national championship existed, but you also had the nightmare of your starting quarterback getting hurt at the beginning of the year and an early season loss after you had come off of two losses uh, to end the, the previous year. And then another quarterback gets hurt. We had a teammate who committed suicide that year. Um, it was just, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of those nightmares, things that would keep you up at night. 
Um, but it was really fun. And, and if anybody takes the time to listen to that, you'll get some insight on Urban there too. And, and we, we keep it pretty raw and honest about who he was as a coach and um, how he used to coach us. But we also tell you the more personal side too of how we got to know him and what he has meant to all of us. Um, so it's, it, was, it was a ton of fun to do. Uh, and I hope that people who have listened to it or people who are going to listen to it have a great time reliving that story. If you guys have not listened to it yet, it'd be a great thing to do during this Christmas break. Glory days, dreams and nightmares. Go get subscribed to it. Get all the episodes in your phone. So, you know, even give Buckeye Talk a break. We just say that same dad jokes <laughs> over and over again. Get some insight from guys who lived it. Joshua Perry and Evan Spencer, uh, two of the best Buckeyes around. Joshua. So grateful for your time on this. Nobody could have broken down this situation any better than you just did for the last hour. Here's my trick. I say, hey, you got 20 minutes, and then we go an hour. Yeah, so I, uh, get you. So I told you I got time. So all I got to do is take a nap today. That's really it. I'm getting the booster. Make sure you get booster. Oh, yeah. No, I've been boosted forever, man. I'm flying high. Um, all right, everybody. That was fantastic. Thanks to Joshua Perry for that. Thanks to you guys for listening. I'm Doug Maurice, and that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>